You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 4, 43 to 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you, are, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have been in the Gospel of John uh, for a number, I think we're coming up on months at this point. We've been in studying the Gospel of John, which has quickly turned into one of my favorite, well, I think it is my favorite uh, gospel. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I think uh, I can say now that this is my favorite. Uh, and we, we've called this series, That You May Believe. And, and there's really two parts. You see, come and see that you may believe. This invitation we see over and over and over throughout the Gospel of John, this come and see, come and see who Jesus is so that you may believe and have life in his name. Really, that is John's mission as he writes this gospel. Now, in, in the four chapters that we've studied so far, we have seen several come-and-see encounters with Jesus. Most recently, it was the woman at the well, and today, we have another come-and-see encounter. And this one is a little bit different. Um, this, is, this is an encounter that starts in desperation and ends with devotion. It starts in desperation and then ends in devotion and discipleship. And so let me set up the story for you. If you remember back in John chapter 3, um, even if you go back even a little bit further than that, uh, we're told that Jesus begins his ministry in Cana. This is the place that makes mention of it where Jesus turned water into wine at that wedding feast. And shortly after Jesus does that first miracle uh, that John records, he goes into Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast, which is what every good Jew would do. And while Jesus was there celebrating the Passover, uh, he 
is performing signs. Um, this is one of the things that Nicodemus is drawn to Jesus for and that we see later on. He's performing signs. Though John doesn't uh, document them, we can see that he does signs. And, and one of the things that Jesus does is also he cleanses the temple. Um, you've got those money exchangers. You've get, got those merchants who have moved their commerce into a sacred place and have thus desecrated God's place for worship. And in Jesus' time in Jerusalem, people are intrigued by Jesus. They, they're, they're just in awe and wonder of the things that Jesus does, the, his signs, his wonders, but also um, the fact that Jesus took on the establishment of the religious leaders of their day. And so this is intriguing. People see Jesus doing this, but at the same time as people are intrigued, you see another category of people, primarily the religious leaders, who are threatened by Jesus. Um, this is more explicit in the other gospel accounts, but we see that these religious leaders see what Jesus is doing, see what Jesus is saying, and they are threatened by him and become hostile towards him. And thus, Jesus leaves Jerusalem shortly after the Passover and heads back for Galilee, this land of where the first miracle happened. Galilee, Cana is in Galilee. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem, but he says that in John chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, John says that he, he must go through Samaria. And Scott did a good job of telling us that, that most Jews would go around Samaria. That they tried to avoid uh, Samaria because it was a, a land full of people that were hostile towards God. Jews and Samaritans did not. It says, the passage says that they, they have no dealings with one another. And so this is strange that Jesus goes through Samaria intentionally because that woman on, at the well is there. And he goes through a hostile land. But instead of finding hostility in a hostile land, rather, Jesus finds uh, that he is honored as the Messiah by the Samaritan people. The, the woman at the well testifies that Jesus, he is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the one we have been waiting for. And we see this sort of uh, a burst of revival, really, in the land of Samaria as many people come to believe in Jesus. Which makes it interesting when you, when you contrast, compare and contrast the reaction that people got, uh, that Jesus got from people in Jerusalem that, that wanted nothing to do with him. The religious establishment wanted to push Jesus out, hostile towards him. And here in a hostile land, they are receptive towards him. Now, this is why in the prologue, John mentions that Jesus is rejected by his own. And it's why it's brought up again here in verse 44 uh, when it says that, that uh, uh, Jesus had testified that the prophet has no honor in his hometown. Speaking specifically of among his people, he's got no honor. But here among the Samaritans, he, he was honored as the Messiah. And so after having this Good reception in Samaria. Jesus continues his journey to Galilee, two days in Samaria, and moves on to Cana, where things started back uh, uh, with the water, the, the wedding with the water into wine. And we see this in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So we, we get the idea that these are good Jews that have also traveled to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And here, Jesus is welcomed back to the place where his ministry started. And we might wonder, if Jesus had such a, a hostile encounter in Jerusalem, what makes this different from his reception now in Cana? And really it boils down to this. The people in Cana saw something sensational about Jesus. The, the people of Cana in Galilee, they saw that Jesus was almost, this might be putting it crassly, Jesus was an entertainer. 
The fact that he could do signs and perform miracles and, and do all of these gestures and wonders, it, it gave them this idea that there was something exciting about Jesus and we just want to see more. We, we just want to be wowed. They hope to see Jesus do more signs. Now, this, this fascination that they have is something that later on the Apostle Paul calls out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says the, the Greeks, they want the wisdom. They, they come to Jesus because he says he's, he's the wisdom of God. There's something attractive about wisdom. The Jews, however, are attracted to Jesus because of his signs and his wonders. And so the Jewish people have this fascination that Jesus has this miraculous power to do things that no ordinary man can do. Now, this, this fascination that the Jews have about wonders and signs is why Jesus makes a jab at this later on in verse 48 with a dialogue with this official that comes to visit. This, this, this whole interaction, without understanding that context and the Jewish obsession of signs, is very confusing, sort of disorienting of why Jesus is so abrasive to this guy as he's coming with a genuine plea for help. It's because Jesus is, he's pinpointing this, this strange obsession that the Jewish people have. And we'll touch on this again later on. And as Jesus makes his way back into Cana, word gets out that he's back, and an, an, an official approaches Jesus. This is what we see. Look at with me in verse 46 and 47. So he came again to Cana, that's Jesus, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So here we have Jesus in Cana, and we have this other man that's introduced now to the story, this official. Now, we don't know a lot about this guy. We don't know his name. We don't know what kind of rank he has. But there are a few things that we do know about this official, or this nobleman, as some other translations call him. First, this official is from Capernaum. I would guess that you are not uber familiar with uh, that, the geography in that part of the world. Most people are not. Um, but Capernaum is a 25-mile journey from Cana. And, and because Capernaum is down uh, near the Sea of Galilee, it, it's close to sea level, uh, Cana is actually situated um, elevation-wise above it. And so this guy makes this track from Capernaum, a 25-mile journey. It's about a two-day journey if he keeps pressing real hard all the way up this mountain to come to see Jesus. So he's coming from Capernaum. It's a long journey, 25 miles, about two days. The second thing we know about this guy is as a nobleman, as an official, it's very likely, in fact, we can assert this quite confidently, that he has some kind of wealth and influence. Um, in this region, there were a lot of people appointed. Again, Caesar is, is ruling over all of this part of the world at this time. And Caesar has deployed um, under rulers beneath him to control and take, take uh, jurisdiction over certain regions. So this official is probably an underling of another higher-ranking official, yet still has some kind of authorities, has some kind of influence, and with that comes wealth. The third thing we know about this guy is that he has a deathly ill son. A son who, he says, is on his deathbed, essentially. He's, he's not well, and if there is no intervention, he's likely to die. Now, this tells us the fourth and probably the most important thing for us to realize about this man is that he is desperate. If he is, in fact, a wealthy ruler, 
That means he has all kinds of resources available at his fingertips that, that I'm certain he would have deployed trying to find a doctor, trying to find someone who can address this crisis that he has with his deathly ill son. And what he has found is that he's come up short every time. And so we see this in the fact that he's willing to travel 25 miles to, to talk to Jesus, to try to convince him to come back to Capernaum, that he is a desperate man. Now, you might be in a spot like that now. You might have this sense of desperation. You've got health issues that you're facing. You're wondering how the bills are gonna come together, that what we make is gonna meet what we have to pay out. Your marriage might be on the rocks, or life in general is quite challenging. And you find yourself in a place of desperation. And when we feel this sense of desperation, oftentimes we feel helpless, right? That, that you have an urgent need that you yourself are unable to fix, that, that you yourself cannot change the outcome. Your hands are tied, so to speak. And, and not to say that you haven't exhausted every other option that you have available at the point. You've deployed every resource at your fingertips. You've called in every favor Everything that you can think of, you've tried, and yet there is nothing that you can do. You find yourself really at the end of yourself. You're at the end of yourself, and you have no clue. You have no clue. What am I going to do now? Now, when, when we're in a state of desperation, there's this tendency that we get pulled into two different directions. And oftentimes, uh, they oscillate really quickly um, from day to day, maybe even hour by hour. The, the first uh, place that we're pulled to is in the place of resignation. In, in desperation, our helplessness becomes hopelessness. That, that there's, no, there's no bright future that awaits. There's no way this thing comes about in a good, good way. And so when our helplessness becomes hopelessness, what, what tends to happen is we find ourselves in a depressed state. Spiritually depressed, emotionally depressed, relationally sort of cut off and severed off from other people. We just sort of tuck ourselves away and resign. We take our hands up and say, well, what's gonna happen is gonna happen. And we're not very optimistic about what it's gonna be. That's one way that we're pulled. The other is to be uh, pulled in the direction of rashness, to make hasty decisions that are borderline irrational. Now, if you've ever had hiccups, uh, this is a micro expression of this tendency, okay? You got hiccups and it won't go away for like minutes into to hours, right? You, and you're like, I'm willing to try anything. You look it up on Google and it says, well, if you eat peanut butter, you know, a spoonful of peanut butter, they'll take care of it. Stand on your head, that'll take it. None of this, where's the science behind this, right? There, there's no proof of this. You know, say the Lord's Prayer backwards, or I don't, there's all kinds of strange approaches to, in your state of desperation here, um, these irrational options start to seem viable. You're willing to try the absurd. Now, to some, what this official does here at the end of John chapter four might seem rash. 
to some, some people will look at this. In fact, you can imagine the headline right now. Desperate father turns to furloughed carpenter for medical advice and help for his son. Right? It, it doesn't make sense. They, they look at this and say, that there's, this is rash, this is absurd, this is irrational. Yet the father asked. Look at verse 47. So when this man heard that Jesus came from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, this is the point where Jesus gives this retort in verse 48 about all you want are signs. But what becomes very clear is that that's not the case for this father. This official isn't coming for the, the spectacle. This father's coming in desperation. He, he wants not a sign, he wants his son to be well. And so we see this second urgent plea in verse 49. The official said to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. What we have here is not an official. An official is, is a helpful to understand sort of the resources that are available at his fingertips. What we have here primarily is a father. What we have here is a dad. A dad and all he wants more than anything in the world is to get his kid in front of Jesus. That's what he wants. It's not a sign. He wants his son. Dads, let me ask you. Do you have the same kind of urgency and concern that this father has for his kids as you do your own? Now, thanks be to God that your kids probably are not on life support. Um, maybe they are. I hope not. I pray for them. Your kids might not be literally dying in a hospital bed, but your children are born spiritually dead. Are you doing whatever you can to get them in front of Jesus? Are you, are you bringing them to church with you every Sunday? Are you reading the Bible together as a family? Are you devoting yourself to family worship and talking about Jesus every opportunity you get? Are you setting a Christ-like example, living full of grace and truth? Do you have that kind of concern for your children? Not just for dads, but moms as well. And actually, if you want to extend this beyond that, maybe you don't have kids, or maybe you do have kids, and this still applies, but do you have that kind of concern for your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving coworkers, the, pe the people that you're on mission to? You see, like this official six boy, what people need most is to know Jesus. What your kids need most is to know Jesus. What your friends need most is to know Jesus. Because you cannot save your kids. Hey, you can't even save yourself. Because you too, at one point, and maybe this is true if you're not a Christian, are spiritually dead. You need help. Now as sinners, we're all pinned up against the wall. 
We are in a sin-sick world. Our hearts are wicked and defiled by sin. And the wages of sin is death. This is our reality. This is our predicament. And you cannot fix it yourself. There is no way to work yourself out of this sin-sickness. We are pinned up against a wall. We've exercised every resource available to us, and we still come up short. We are desperate for God's intervention, just like this official. Now, this is point number one for today. Desperation is meant to drive you to Jesus. Scott had a slide game elite level here. I'm trying to keep up. Here it is. Point number one, desperation is meant to drive you to Jesus. The only answer for your inability and need in life is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Jesus proves himself to be a strong and capable savior. And and fulfilling the scriptures in Malachi 4.2 that says, he rises with healing in his wings. We sing about this at Christmas. Now, this is not just true in salvation. This is not just true in saving you from the pits of hell and bringing you to the Father. But this is true in every aspect of life, every season of life. And what I need you to see today is that this is the most logical thing that you can do. Running to Jesus in your desperation is the most logical thing that you can do. This isn't rash. This isn't like a a magic eight ball scenario and we'll see what happens. This is the most logical thing that you can do in your desperation. This desperation drives the official, this father, to Jesus, and he makes a big request. He, he essentially is praying to Jesus, except for Jesus is right there in the flesh. He makes his request known. It says, Jesus, save my son's life. Now, this guy, look at this. All he does is ask him, save my, come, come down. Let me see if I can find it real quick. He says, come down and heal my son. He says, uh, the second petition, and uh, sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't bargain with Jesus. He doesn't say, Jesus, look at all these good things that I've done in my life. He doesn't try to like twist Jesus' arm with the resources that he has. Hey, I'll make your life easy for you. I'll make sure that you can go through this region without any sort of political uh, opposition. He doesn't do any of that. All he does is lean on the mercy and kindness of Jesus and makes a simple and profound request. Save my son. Now, Christian, listen to me. If this guy had the audacity to boldly make this huge ask of Jesus, how much more should we run to Jesus in our desperation and ask big and bold things of him? If this guy, random guy, has the audacity to do this, how much more as the adopted children of God should we go to our Father in heaven and ask for these things? In fact, here's the thing. It's like, you've got permission to do this. Hebrews 4.12. Like, like there's a standing invitation. Let me, let me show it to you here. If I can find the right 
pages. I usually try to mark these, but there we go. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know that we have permission to draw near to the throne of grace, to to call out to God, to go to Jesus and ask for his help. Now, this is, brings us to point number two. True faith, and I think what we see, if you compare and contrast the official's faith to, the, to the, those who are just interested in seeing the spectacle of Jesus, this true faith that we see in this official, true faith asks for big and bold prayers. True faith asks big and bold The invitation of Hebrews, let us now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And we don't draw confidently toward the throne of grace because of our own ability. We we don't come to the throne of grace with a swagger because we've checked off our Bible reading plan this week or, or we've helped somebody out in need. We come with confidence, not based on who we are, but on who we ask. That we're approaching Jesus, our great high priest, who knows what it's like to live on this earth. And as we come to the throne of grace with confidence, I want, to, I want to encourage you to ask specific things of God. It, it's fine to pray for peace. It's fine to pray for just these, these giant blanket prayers. That, that's fine. I'm, If it's a choice between not praying and praying for those things, just pray for those things. But there's something to be said about praying for specific things, of making your requests known to God in a specific manner. Are you lacking in boldness on mission? Do you need to be more like the Samaritan woman that just sort of like all everything that inhibits you from proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life? You need boldness? Ask for boldness. Are you downcast? Pray that the Lord would lift you up. Are you lonely? Ask for the Lord to move near to you and you can sense his spirit and his presence. You're struggling with anger or lust or bitterness. Take these things to God. Do you have somebody that's sick and needs prayer? Pray for them. Pray for these things specifically. Now, we're given the access to pray. We're given permission. We're called to pray. But too often, we don't. Too often, we don't ask. James talks about this in chapter 4. He says, but because you don't ask, you don't have. Because you don't bring these requests to God, he, he, you know, he's available, yet we are not coming to him. And a lot of times, the reason why we don't ask is either because it's, we're in denial about how bad our circumstances really are. 
We think we're more um, self-autonomous than we can be. Like we think we're more sufficient in ourselves and we're not to the point where we, we're on the you know, last thread and we really need God's help now. We have some sort of denial about our predicament or we're just too proud. We're just too proud to ask. And when we don't ask and bring these requests to God, we miss out on the depths of his grace and his mercy that are available to us. Now, one thing that you need to know, Christian, is that your prayer requests cannot bankrupt God. Your prayer requests cannot overextend God. The Apostle Paul tells us, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. There is no prayer request that you have that outpaces God's kindness and his power. John Newton says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. This is why we can, in true faith, come and ask big and bold prayers of God. The official asks in true faith, he, he, he listen, he truly believes that Jesus can save his son. He truly believes this. He has legitimate faith. Now, Jesus' response to him in verse 50 is this. He doesn't go with him to Capernaum. So in one sense, he doesn't answer that part of the prayer. But Jesus does say this in verse 50. Jesus said to the man, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. All it takes for Jesus to heal this man's son are five words uttered from 25 miles away, and it could have taken less. And we see this in an astonishing act of faith. This man takes Jesus at his word. He doesn't ask for a sign. He doesn't ask for a guarantee. He takes Jesus at his word, and he walks away to go back home on that 25-mile journey. This guy had his in his mind that if Jesus said it, it's as good as done. If Jesus said it, it's the truth. This brings us to point number three. What this official shows us is the essence of Christian living is taking Jesus at his word. The essence of Christian living is taking Jesus at his word. Now, we don't know how every little thing in life is going to shake out. There's so much in life that's unpredictable, that's erratic. But there is one thing in this life that is always steadfast. There's one thing in this world that is always dependable, and that is Jesus and his word. And so the Christian life, I mean, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. We talk about building your life upon the rock, right? All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is inviting us to build our life on the promise of Jesus himself and his word. 
that, that we'd hold on to God's promises, which all find their yes and amen in Christ, and observe his commands. Because here's one thing that we have to realize, is that God's commands are often attached to a promise. Right? The gesture of believing in God's promises is acting in accordance with his commands. And so this is what it means to this is what it means to take Jesus at his word. Not only do we believe the promises, but we observe his commandments to trust and obey. Now this is Sounds simple, trust and obey. But you can't. <laughs> At least you can't do it perfectly. See, you're gonna find these moments where um, your faith is lacking, or what rather happens is instead of trusting in Jesus, the true and living God, your, your gaze, your trust turns to idols to security, your home, your bank account, your kid. It goes to those things. And in that moment, your trust gets to place from Jesus onto those idols. And in those moments, it is essential for us to be able to identify that our hearts are gravitating towards idols. And what we must do is turn and turn back to Jesus. And as we turn away from those things and turn to Jesus, we must remember, just as Hebrews told us, that we have a great high priest who cleanses us by his own blood, that offers us forgiveness for our sins and our unbelief. Christian, you might be in a spot right now where your faith is wavering, and I want to urge you, turn away from your idols and turn to Christ, and you will find the mercy of God awaiting you. The official took Jesus at his word, and in faith he walked away. We see this in verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Very good news. So he asked them the hour, because it's kind of curious. He asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. See, we see this incredible thing where Jesus answers this man's prayer. Now, this is, this is why it's good for us to pray for the specifics, because if we pray for specific things to happen and God delivers them, we get to rejoice all the more. We get to see that God actually heard our pleas and he acted in his delight to answer these prayers for us. And in that, we give him the credit. We give him the worship. And this deepens our faith. We see it. Like, this man already believed Jesus. He already took Jesus at his word. But then there's, there's this second, uh, this reiteration that, and he believed him. It strengthens our faith. But what we got to see is that it doesn't just strengthen his faith, but it strengthens the, the faith of those around him. Just like the Samaritan woman we saw the last couple weeks who, who had this encounter with Jesus and her faith uh, just, faith in Jesus exploded we see this contagious nature of faith. 
When Jesus answered this man's prayer, it didn't just solidify or strengthen his faith in Jesus. It then transformed his whole household. Now his whole household, his sons, his bondservants, now are also believing in Jesus' name. It's contagious. And if we were to follow this ripple effect out as an official who has influence, it's likely, highly likely, that that would carry out into other places in the city as well. This is point number four. This will bring it home. God answers prayer to advance his mission. God answers prayer to advance his mission. We see this man going from desperation to discipleship. He's making Jesus known. The mission of God is moving out. We saw it go through Samaria, and now here it is. It's about to go through Capernaum. His faith spreads from his household and into the city. Now, if you've ever asked God for something, if you've ever brought to God a, a a big, bold prayer request, and you have got to see God graciously work and answer that prayer, maybe even above and beyond what you were asking for, you know that that is exciting. You know that that is exhilarating, that is faith-provoking. And I think this, this official shows us that. But let me just, real quick, as I wind it down here, let me ask you, what about the times when we ask God for something and we don't get what we want. See, this man came with a prayer request, and he asked God. And God, Jesus was gracious to deliver. And worship and discipleship happens. But what happens when he doesn't answer our prayers the way that we were asking for? What happens to your faith then? Do you find your faith withering up? Fading out? Are, are you less inclined to run to Jesus in desperation if you've experienced that once or twice? And let me just offer this warning. Satan would like nothing more for you to cut ties. Like, if your prayer requests don't go through the way that you hope them to, Satan would like nothing less for you to say, well, Jesus dropped the ball, guess I can't trust him anymore. Well, we have to realize, brothers and sisters, that it's in these times where God doesn't answer our prayers the way that he hoped he would. It's in these times where God does the most work in our lives. It's in these times that show us that God's ways are not our ways. They are high above them. It's in these times that we're reminded of, of Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's in these times where our, our faith grows and strengthens, our dependency upon Jesus gets bigger and bigger, at least our awareness of it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. As long as we don't short-circuit it. These seasons where prayers don't come through the way we want, it deepens our dependence upon God and fuels our prayer life. So if you're in a, a spot where you're asking God to come through and it just seems like the answer that you're getting right now is not what you hoped it would be, do not lose heart. Continue to cling to Christ in faith to keep asking those big and bold prayers. It, you might be getting an, a no answer or you might be getting a not yet answer. It's all in God's timing. 
And, and certainly it is challenging and it's hard and, and certainly puts your faith to the test. But we must remember that the most glorious event in history occurred because God answered no to a prayer. The most glorious event in history occurred because God said no. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed, he knew that the cross was coming. He knew that the weight of sin was going to rest upon him as he carried them to the cross. And Jesus prayed to the Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Take the cup of wrath from me. And you know what God said? No. And, and you should be glad he said no. Because in God allowing the cup of wrath to come down on Jesus, drink this cup. God made a way for your salvation. Your greatest good came out of a no to a prayer request. Jesus paid the price for your sins, even the sins of faithlessness and your, your attempts at self-autonomy. Jesus took all of those and nailed them to the cross so that when you see the cross, when you see what he has done for you, you would see and believe. God said no to Jesus, and yet Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And because Jesus was told no, now all who believe in him have true life. All who believe in him will have life that does not end. Now, the life that you have right now will still be marked by trials and difficulties and suffering and pain and sorrow. But one day, when Jesus brings the new heavens and new earth, when heaven and earth meet together and, and sin is pushed out and eradicated once and for all, where there's no more sickness or sorrow or gloom or death, then we will have the glorious life that all of our prayers are desired, all of our prayers are pointed to. So that in Jesus, every one of God's promises finds its yes and amen in him. As we come to the Lord's table today, we are reminded of this reality. That Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, so that yours wouldn't have to be. God said no to Jesus as far as a way out, so that we could be brought in to his family so that we could come and make our prayer requests known to God, that we would come and have life in his name. Brothers and sisters, let us turn from our idols and sin and turn toward Christ this morning, placing our full faith upon him. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. That as the sovereign ruler of the cosmos, all things are at your command. You can do whatever you want. And Lord, we, we have people in this room this morning that are, are asking you to do things, Lord, that we desire to see done. And we have people that are asking things that maybe, Lord, it's not in your, your, your design, your plan for those things to come to fruition. But Lord, wherever we're at, I pray that this morning this meal would be uh, something that stirs our faith, that strengthens our faith, that we see our needs, our deepest needs provided for in Jesus Christ. That because of his death that we can find life. That he has come down from heaven and he brings life with him. 
We thank you for all you have done and ask that you would help us to walk faithfully before you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.